Investment Management Operations is brought to you by Intelligo. Intelligo is the premier due diligence platform delivering innovative pre-investment background checks and continuous subject monitoring for some of the most sophisticated asset allocators. Their individual and company background check reports blend the critical discernment of human experts with cutting-edge AI, ensuring you receive the most thorough and rapid insights. Groups like Common Fund, Adam Street Partners, Felicitas Global Partners, and past Capital Allocators guests Hamilton Lane, AIM13, and NEPC leverage Intelligo to mitigate risk and enhance their operational due diligence process. Visit Intelligo.ai to learn more. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Investment Management Operations. This show explores the inner workings of the most sophisticated institutions in the industry. Through conversations with executives across operations, compliance, legal, and finance, you'll hear how key operating partners run their businesses in an ever-changing and complex investment landscape. You can join our mailing list and access Capital Allocators content at capitalallocators.com. I'm Scott McDonald, and I'm your host. My guest on today's show is Steve Baranowski. Steve is a partner and head of client operations at Adam Street Partners, a private investment manager with $58 billion in assets. Steve discusses his early career in public accounting and the nuances of transitioning to a client. He then shares what makes Adam Street unique and how their operations have evolved over time while striving to keep the culture intact. He shares his perspective on what it takes to be self-administered, as well as knowing when to farm that out as your business changes. We then turn to how LPs are interacting with GPs today with a focus on tax structuring, fund expenses, and cash controls. Whether you're a GP or an LP, there are some good takeaways for all. Please enjoy my conversation with Steve Baranowski. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So want to go back and hear a little bit about how you found your way to Adam Street. I went from college right into public accounting, as so many of us do. And I was in the federal tax practice at KPMG in Chicago. So worked very closely with large variety of clients as I started my career. There wasn't as much specialization back then. So I was working on banking clients, insurance clients, mutual funds. And that's when I first started to get into private equity. And actually, one of the first clients I ever touched when I was over at KPMG was Adam Street. So Adam Street was in the early stages then of having spun out and being created as a separate entity. So I was at KPMG for a little over 10 years. And pretty much my whole time there, Adam Street was one of my biggest clients. So got a lot of variety of different types of work across the financial services, but I got to see Adam Street grow from the outside, which was really interesting. You know, it was a great opportunity for me to branch out too. So I came over here to Adam Street to work in a role that was much broader than just tax. I was obviously spending a lot of time and still do on tax-related matters, but broadening to the whole finance and operations organization at Adam Street. So covering, at that point in my career, corporate accounting, investment accounting, treasury operations, all of it. So got to come in, see where that was when I joined, and over the last decade or so, see how that's grown and helped really develop and grow the strategy of how we look at that here at Adam Street. Tell us more about what Adam Street is and a little bit more detail on that. Adam Street itself, Fund of Funds, is where we grew up. And that has grown various other business around it. 
So now we have our fund to fund our primary business, as we call it, where we're investing in other funds. We have our secondary business where we're acquiring stakes in existing funds. We have our co-investment business, which we're investing in alongside sponsors in specific deals, taking minority stakes in those. We have our growth equity business, which we're making direct investments into growth equity companies. And then we have our newest business, private credit, where we're actually doing direct deals into middle market private credit. Adam Street has evolved in a very unique way. We're 100% employee owned and have built everything from the ground up. And the idea here is that all of these businesses have a lot of synergies together. Some of our competitors have similar scope of work, but we think we provide a pretty unique access point to investments for our clients, as well as the synergies that exist when you have the relationships. You have a relationship with a manager. What does that mean? You're going to do a primary investment with them. They're going to be comfortable with you coming in on a secondary basis because they already know you to the extent they can guide some of those processes. You're going to get some co-invest deal flow from all those great managers you're investing with. And then a lot of the deals they're doing are also going to require private credit on debt financing for transactions. So the idea is these all feed each other to create a very synergistic business. And how big are you today? We are $58 billion in AUM. And how big were you when you started at Adam Street? We're probably closely 20 to 25 billion of AOM. My team that reports up through me now scales 50, 50 to 55 people in that range. When I first started, I think there's maybe 12, 15. So significant growth and similar growth in the total number of employees. So it's been a great growth path over the last decade and really continue to want to push that forward as well. So that growth story isn't over. We're out there trying to continue to build our business. It's really interesting because 50 tends to be a demarcation line about the communication flow is different. There's less tacit information. What are your thoughts on that? Just generally thinking it through from a fundraising perspective, when I first came on and before that, we weren't really focused on trying to be everything for everyone. We were trying to focus on we have a product. We have a global offering, if you will, a few other things around that at that time. But generally speaking, we're going to build the best ideas portfolio and there's a very specific client that wants that. The pool of clients we were marketing to were the ones who wanted that type of a strategy. They're folks who want access to private equity, but don't necessarily have staff or infrastructure to do it in a way on their own. So that worked really, really well for a very long time. But to go from the size of our firm we were to a size we want to be at, you can't just do that through that type of thinking. So what we have evolved into is bigger clients, more bigger clients, what do bigger clients want? they may be able to cover a specific area and they may want something very specific from us. So to get that AUM number to grow, you can't do it with small bits. That can help. And there's lots of different avenues and different channels that can continue to get that number bigger as we want to grow it. But you really need to start thinking more of the big clients. And to your point, those clients are going to demand a different way of thinking around service level for sure. So we have waded into those waters in terms of types of reporting, specific information around investments, specific information around expenses, different types of tax reporting. As you continue to grow up that chain, the reporting needs and the unique requests certainly grow as well. Do you think about things differently from a hiring perspective today than the way you might have when you first started? Definitely. I sit in a role, it's called head of client operations. It's a relatively new role that we've created here. So I've got investment accounting, middle office, treasury operations, tax, and performance reporting that all report up to me. So those groups, bringing them all together under one tent, there's a ton of synergies that we work towards, connecting those teams, making sure everybody's on the same page in terms of data, structures, transactions. If something 
trying to push for more in the team of making sure that we're all, as we kind of continued on this path of more complicated, bigger, more complex structures, making sure that we're connecting all the data points across the team to make sure everybody's on the same page. And to your point, as you think about hiring, it does get more specific. So we're still looking for really talented junior level accountants and treasury operations people, but we're also looking slightly more upstream than we used to. Perfect example is we had lots of people who touched tax work, but we brought in a more senior head of tax recently because that's something that just was continuing to be a growing need within the business. In terms of just general folks that we're hiring, we're definitely looking for more specific skill sets than we had in the past of bring on junior level people, train them up, they're going to get there. We need people who've done certain things before in a different way than we did in the past. I think one of the interesting things about Amstreet is that you actually self-administer everything. That's right. Our most recent new business line is our private credit business, which looks, for those who work in that space and have also touched the private equity space, they look very different. They maybe feel the same at the onset, like, oh, these are closed-end private assets. But when you really get into some of the reporting needs, some of the structuring needs, obviously the volume of cash flows that come from private credit investing versus private equity investing can differ greatly. So when we put that on the platform, we pretty quickly realized we need a different solution. All the systems and processes that we've grown up with, that we built and refined and work really, really well on the private equity side of the house, not all of that translates into private credit. So we brought that product line on board, made a decision to hire an outside admin for that. So we still have a significant in-house private credit investment accounting and middle office teams, but we do have the administrator doing a lot of the work for us. On the private equity side of the house, you're correct. Other than a few one-offs for very specific reasons, we have a team internally that does almost 100% of the fund administration for our private equity funds. How much does your process and workflow differ from using an outside person to doing it on your own? Ultimately, we're producing the same thing. We need to get financial statements. We need to get cap accounts. We need to get performance reports out the door. But the process is different, definitely from a data perspective, is probably the biggest place that we see it. So we're in private equity side of the house. We're inputting data and our data goes through to all the systems. So there isn't an extra step of reconciliation or making sure that we're feeding data back and forth the right way. Our data spreads to a lot of different systems. But when you add that external party and then you need data in your systems for various other reasons internally, that piece of the puzzle is something that our IT group and our resources on the client ops side spent quite a bit of time getting right. So it does change the process quite a bit. On one hand, it is extension of your team to say, okay, instead of hiring a group of accountants to do this work, I've hired some accountants over here at the admin, and then they're going to feed the work out and we're going to review it and send it out the door. That's part of it. So that part of the process doesn't change a ton, but really that data back and forth and just making sure everything gets set up correctly is different from our perspective when we look at it. Is it more work, same amount of work? It can vary. I would say on the private credit side, it certainly has been less work, ultimately. It takes time to get there, obviously, and no one, I don't think, would disagree with that on any sides have been through this process of building a relationship with an administrator. But at the end of the day, they're providing leverage. If we didn't have them, we would need to have quite a few more bodies in-house. So there's always bumps in the road, but once you get the process down, it creates those synergies. And that's a very different story than what we think about on the private equity side, because as I said, private credit, we pretty much did this from the beginning. So we built and we grew with the admin. We're on the private equity side of the house. We've built inside. And our team here, both on private credit and private equity, is fantastic. That's one of the things we're really proud of, or I'm very proud of on the client operations side, is that the team we've built here that has experience levels 
has a lot of longevity with the organization. So we have a pretty unique ability to be very nimble, be very process-oriented, and just get a lot of work done in a super efficient way. When you went to go find administrator, what did that process look like? You need some help. There's conversations. You collect information from colleagues in the industry. You look to other service providers to kind of help you with that process. What are the things we need to be looking at? So you want to get as much information as you can, because as with anything, those administrators you're talking to are going to put their best foot forward, but there's a practical approach that you're really trying to gauge. So it is a multifaceted decision, because as I said, it's not just a decision from my perspective to say, okay, I like their fund accounting teams and who's going to be working for us. It's what are their systems, what are their data? So you have to touch across the organization to make sure everybody's on board that this relationship is going to work. You talk about your tech stack. What's your approach on the buy versus build on systems and technology? We have a really big IT department. We have a chief technology officer. She's got a ton of experience and has been really helpful in thinking through strategy. But it goes back to the same thing I was speaking about before with the team. We built a lot of stuff because there was nothing to buy at the time. So that's where a lot of our systems have grown outside of just something you can buy off the shelf. So as you get bigger and bigger and more and more data has flown through there and your processes build up around there, it becomes harder to decouple yourself from that. So we're strategic about it. There are things we use today that we built that if we were starting over today, we would buy. There's probably a lot of things like that. But we're constantly threading the needle of how disruptive is it to swap something out versus what is the cost of continuing to maintain something that we built internally versus going and grabbing something that's external. So I'd say slowly built towards adding more third-party systems than we did when I showed up here. There wasn't a ton of it, but it's still just a constant balancing act between how do we unplug something that's been around and working well and how do we balance the disruption that's going to cause versus the long-term cost of maintaining that versus something that's best in class today that you can get off the shelf that you couldn't before. Are you involved with keeping an eye on what's coming to market? I think for us, it's a bit more keeping our eyes focused on where we see inefficiencies in our own world. So I don't think that we're in a position where we're trying to see every single piece of software that comes. We certainly get inundated with folks who want to show us what they have in our roles, which is great. It's awesome that the industry has continued to mature where there is a lot more product out there. But I think we think about it much more from the flip side of what's best process for us and where are we seeing bottlenecks? Where are we seeing things that our systems are slowing down or, or our remit in terms of structures and data we need to provide has evolved? And okay, our system isn't equipped to do this the best today. Do we build or do we go look and see what's out there? So it's a lot more of we're hunting a specific type of product potentially versus us trying to just stay abreast of everything that's out there. Do you spend time thinking about what slows you down or is it obvious? No, definitely we think about it. Going back to some of the things we were talking about before, we can do certain types of funds, the types of funds we've had forever, quick, fast, go. So what slows us down there is not necessarily always obvious. It's things that can pop up, but the process works. So for new stuff is really what we're thinking about. Here's something new that we're doing from a structuring perspective, from a layering perspective of different strategies into a fund in a way, or a tranching perspective, or a blocker perspective. Things that come up that don't fit, obviously, into our system. That's the stuff that slows us down. And when it slows us down, it's obvious to your point that it slows us down. So it's more of solving those things as they come up. We always want to continue to analyze our process and say, where are we spending time? Does that deliver value to our clients? Does it get us to what's the end goal we're trying to accomplish and how much of what we're doing here really gets us to that goal? So we are constantly thinking about that as well. And then just on the development of the client upside, could you just share what that is for Adam Street? 
So what we consider client operations, as I said, is investment accounting, middle office, treasury ops, tax, and performance reporting. Those all sit together under our client operations umbrella. And really the way we thought about it as we brought this group together and continued to think about the way our team should be structured is we want to be on the same page of what we're delivering high quality results to clients. So when we say client operations, we're really trying to say, okay, from a back and middle office perspective, who's touching clients on a regular basis? And how can we be consistent in that approach? And how can we make sure that we're tying all those teams together to make sure we're having consistent delivery model of high quality reporting, high quality, high touch client service to our clients? And are you interfacing directly with clients? Yeah, we are. So I interface directly with clients in a lot of different ways. It's anything from due diligence discussions at fund setup and then ongoing. So we're involved a lot upfront, various members of my team, when a new product comes along, we're working through what does that mean for us? What does it mean from a reporting perspective or advising on the structuring or advising on some of the terms that end up in the agreements just to make sure that we're setting it up correctly from day one? So there can be some client interaction from that perspective. A lot of times there's negotiations going on lawyer to lawyer. And a lot of times we need to get involved to talk to somebody in their back office to make sure the words are saying in the document what's actually going to happen when we actually start implementing the mandate. And then from an ongoing basis, my team is touching clients frequently. So that comes in a few different ways. At that upfront due diligence, a lot of times when we get a new client, they want to do due diligence with us. A lot of times there's ongoing due diligence on an annual or semi-annual basis where various members of the operations team are sitting down with clients or the client's representatives just to get on the same page of everything that we're doing and working through on the client ops side. And then frequently there's just questions that come up. We're comfortable when the IR person reaches out and says, hey, can you talk to this client? They have a question about how this works. Or even more, we have a client that we've worked with in one aspect and is doing something new or just has an industry question. We got lots of resources on my team that can have a conversation with them or someone in their back office and help them do something that's completely different, which is a cool feature of what we do. I think that really helps build those client relationships and being open and upfront of sharing information. What's the demarcation line with the IR team and what client ops might be? So the IR team is more traditional. They're day-to-day with the clients. They're servicing existing clients. That client point contact, certainly from the investment side of the house, the decision-making side of the house, that all sits outside of my team. My team is there to handle that, typically more of that ongoing relationship. Maybe not the same people that the IR are talking to. Sometimes it is, depending on the organization. But a lot of times it's somebody else at those organizations that needs something from us. So that's where it splits. So it's interesting just on the ODD side. So being in the seat of you probably have somebody who is actually doing the ODD on your potential stable of managers, but then also you're actually managing the interaction with the LP. We have a separate ODD team, to your point, that looks at our investments, the investments that our funds are going to go into that sits outside of my team. And then we do the inbound ODD. There's always something that they want to touch on a client. Those ODD meetings can be wide in terms of exactly what they're looking at. But from an operational due diligence perspective, there's always something for our team to talk about or for them to look at on my side of the house. And what's different today with ODD and the evolution of it? I think that there certainly is more sophistication in the ODD process. There's always been people who've done it the right way, but I still think it's continued to grow in a good direction. I think what you don't want, I don't think what anybody wants on our side or on the side of a client is for it to be a check the box exercise because you can go through that. Here's a questionnaire. Do you have these cash controls? When are you going to deliver your reporting? What do you do from this, this, and this from a tax perspective? And that's all well and good and necessary to make sure. 
But if you're going to invest the time on their end to engage an ODD client to engage someone to do ODD for them or for them to have their own internal department to do it, and then on our end to participate in those discussions, the best outcome is for you both get something on both ends. So we go into those meetings. Obviously, we're open, transparent about what we're doing. We want to understand what they're looking at from a market-facing perspective, where they see best practice and how ours doesn't align with that, and talk about it. Here's why we do things maybe a little bit different than other people do and want to make sure we have an answer for that. And we are thinking about it. And we're comfortable that the way we do it works best for us and for our clients. And it might not be the one that's on the top of your list in terms of this is the way you should do it. And that works really well. And I think clients appreciate that. I think the folks we're engaging with on the ODD side appreciate that as well. So having a mutually beneficial outcome on those ODD meetings is something that I'm seeing more and more of and is a really good outcome. What else is on people's mind? We have private funds rules coming out. Just anything that you're seeing that help look around the corner for people? The private funds rules is a big one. So I think that's obviously there's a lot still going on in the marketplace and potentially in the courts there of how that's exactly going to land. But we're out in front of planning for it. And something like that usually that shakes up the industry. There's usually some consensus across industry participants of how we're going to do this. So a lot of what we're doing now, there's some what we'll call low-hanging fruit where our team is hacking away at things that we think are definitely going to be in here. And it's pretty clear how the way you're going to have to do it. So trying to get out of front of what can we get done now from a systems perspective, from a data perspective to get us ready. That's number one. And then number two, some of the other potential gray areas, it's staying close to our internal legal department, external parties to just start building our plan around what that's going to look like, where it's going to land, what's going to be the industry perspective around how that's going to be implemented. The big thing in there is the timelines. So obviously, there's a lot of big things in there. But from just a purely process perspective, there's some changes to what some of the reporting looks like. But that's a bit just doing some work behind the scenes to get that to go. Or there's a big process shift is once something we could produce in 90 or 120 days after quarter, year end, before, now needs to come out in 45 days or 75 days. So that is a big change, both from how we think about what people are doing and when they're spending time doing what they're doing to make sure that those deadlines are going to be met. And it's also a big change in terms of the reporting we're getting from the underlying. So the whole timeline is going to shift. So we're really spending a lot of time thinking about that, working through that. What does it mean from a resource perspective? What does it mean from a data perspective of issuing something on a shorter fuse? What information are you going to have to do it at the shorter time versus what you had when you had a little more time to do it? So that's definitely a big one. A lot of focus on expenses. I think that is an area that everybody sitting in my seat spends a lot of time thinking about. So fund expenses. Are we making sure we're perfectly buttoned up and documented on what gets charged to the funds? and how that looks and how it matches to our agreements. So this one dovetails with the new SEC rules as well. It's a focus area there. And we've spent a lot of time, invested a lot of resources in making sure that we have that up and running and we get that right. So that's another area where we spend a lot of time and our clients think about that. And we know the SEC thinks about that. Is it more transparency of reporting? Because the process still has to be, even under the current regime, you still have to be able to allocate appropriately. But where's the lift on that? So from the new reporting rules perspective, it is. It's more transparency on categories. So it's more granular. It's thinking about it more for a perspective of what exactly does your legal document say that you can charge to the fund? What provision is that under in your legal document? And tie that back to the financial reporting in some way. So the numbers in total aren't going to change. To your point, we're very comfortable that what we're doing works, how we're allocating expenses works that we have the right processes and documentation in place as well. So from that perspective, that's a continued lift and that just continues to grow as you get more types of mandates with 
different types of client demands on what type of expenses we should and shouldn't charge to the fund. And as you continue to grow out the volume there, that process just takes more time and just absorbs more thought and more resources internally. So that's happening regardless. And then you layer on top of that, this additional reporting granularity, a twofold where that's just, I think, going to continue to grow as a resource. And from our perspective, we want it to be clean. At the end of the day, we want to spend a lot of time there to make sure we get it right because it is really important from our client's perspective, ultimately, that we get that right. So we're very confident and comfortable that we have the resources and we're doing it the way we should. But it's just that continued evolution of how you have to think about reporting on it. And how much does it impact your downstream reporting from your managers? They're subject to the same rules we are. So when we get that information from our managers, they're using up resources to do the same thing that we're doing. So over the years, the type of reporting people want on expenses has certainly grown. Of They want to understand what's the full expense load, what's happening not only at the Adam Street level, but at the underlying fund level. So it's a continued growth in tracking that information to build towards making sure we can report on what's being asked of us from our clients. And then a couple other areas really that we spend time on, cash controls. That one is and has always been front and center of importance. And the world has evolved, not just in our industry, but in other industries in terms of how folks try to insert themselves into your processes in a very sophisticated way to try to break your cash controls. So we have evolved ours over time and continue to. We're very focused on having a team that spends their time doing this. So having a treasury operations team that is moving cash and is tracking cash and is thinking about that very specific thing all the time. And we like those people to go slow. We're always just highlighting, hey, if anything even looks a little bit off, let's take a stop and think about it. So we have lots of checks in the system that help us prevent anything. And then this is one of those where technology has developed up around it. But at the end of the day, relationships, talking to somebody directly, something that's really important here. You have an existing known context at places. And so you want to make sure if things are changing, wire instructions are changing, anything new is coming across. You're not just accepting something that came through over email. You're going old school and you're picking up that phone, which can be terrifying for some of the folks in some of the younger generations. But we're very focused on that confirmation is necessary at all times. Another big one for us is creative structuring. I think that the private equity world and the private credit world, for that matter, as well, are really areas where there's a lot of time spent thinking about client access to those investments in the most efficient ways possible. So we spend a lot of time working through that. And there's multiple layers from a tax structuring perspective that sometimes it's not obvious what you're trying to solve for. So everybody thinks about from a tax structure perspective, I'm trying to be efficient. I'm trying to say, I have investors coming in from all over the globe. I'm going to make investments all over the place. And there's an army of lawyers out there focusing on those deals as they're happening, just to really make sure, hey, we want to get in and out of this investment in our most efficient way possible. So that sits at the top. That's what people think about. It's very important to make sure that we're focused on that and that we have the right resources in place to help solve for that. And it's important to clients, of course, as well. Is there any evolution there beyond blocker structures, anything novel? I think the standard blocker structures still work. So I think it's just more focus on it and more sophistication on some of the non-US investing and the rules continue to evolve in Europe and other places. So it's making sure you're out in front of where that lands. The other part of this that isn't necessarily just focused on pure tax efficiency really is administrative burden. And that's the one I think sometimes folks don't think as much about and that we really want to spend a lot of time with our clients educating them on it. Because if you're investing directly in a flow-through entity, that can mean a lot of administrative burden. 
we want to make sure that they understand that if you're coming through a blocker structure or some other avenue where, again, there could be some tax leakage and it isn't necessarily material, but what you're saving in terms of potential administrative lift for tax filings, for ongoing tax communications with various jurisdictions can really be saved there. So it is always an educational thing for us. If we have a client who's new to private equity, really trying to get them to understand how we're trying to help them solve not only for tax efficiency, but also administrative burden. I've seen specific deals where you go ahead and do a flow through, but then you realize that the underlying clients then have to file in like 48 states. A hundred percent. When I sat on the KPMG side of the house, this would come up all the time. You'd be over there or you'd have a client and then year end comes and you go, okay, why did you put this investment in this entity? And you think of it when you're sitting on that side of the house, who would do that? Why would that happen? Then you sit on this side of the house and then you start to see the pace. You start to see the deal flow and you go, okay, I get why that would happen. It isn't just like somebody was like, "Eh, I'll pick up entity. It's because things are flying and you got to stay on it. So that's why here we're focused on making sure that we're doing the right thing as we go and as other managers are as well. But it was just an interesting dissection of being on two sides of looking at it from a service provider perspective versus being in the day-to-day of that deal actually closing and how the moving pieces are going in a pace where you got to really stay on it. That's a really interesting insight on that administrative burden. You touched on this a little bit. So you've got client operations and my son won't even order a pizza if he has to pick up the phone. Any advice you have for people in an operations who have client interaction? So I think what's important to define clients from a client operations perspective, we're talking about external clients, but we're also talking about lots and lots of internal clients. So I think from that perspective, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. And a lot of times it's an experience thing. I'll see some email traffic that's going back and forth between some members from my team, perhaps, and some members from other teams internally trying to figure something out. And oftentimes I will specifically say, hey, I recommend that you just call person X and talk about this. And that can be really eye-opening sometimes to say, okay, I see pages of email traffic and then we could potentially just solve this in a quick conversation. So there's pluses and minuses to it. The email traffic can be good because you're documenting what's going on, but that recognition of how can I more efficiently solve this problem and save a ton of time across multiple different people who are getting pulled into this conversation, it's a training exercise. Now, that's not necessarily something that didn't exist in the world before years ago, but more and more prevalent as you get further and further into the digital communication being the one-stop shop for how we interact with each other. In order to be a good client-facing person, you need to understand the business. Is there anything that you guys do to get people up the curve on that? For us, phase one is understanding the structuring because we're producing hundreds of sets of financial statements and you can get lost in the process of, I can produce a good set of numbers that look good and that tie out and they're going to get a clean bill of health from an auditor, but do I understand what those numbers mean? So I think that's a first pass that we try to get people educated on Adam Street and what we're doing. And that dovetails into industry, but a lot of the industry training comes after you understand our structures and what we're doing. When somebody comes on board, that learning curve can be pretty steep. I get your private equity investing, but what's all this stuff in between? I get you have a client that you're raising money from, and I get that it's eventually going to get invested into a company somewhere, but what is all this other stuff in between? And really understanding that takes time. It takes repetition. But once you do, it unlocks something that helps you go, okay, now I understand this. So when I go over here and I read this newspaper article or I go to this industry training, I'm going to understand, even if it's not an operational discussion, but it's more of an industry discussion, I'm going to understand what they're saying there in a different way. And I'm going to bring that back and help apply it to the job that I'm doing. So it is certainly a very evolutionary process. I always think about there aren't a lot of people outside of 
our world, outside of the tax, legal, operational world, that care about that. At the end of the day, a client goes, I'm going to give you some money. Ultimately, it's going to get invested down into a company, and then you're going to give me more money back. And that feels great, and I'm ready to move on. And having that discipline in your organization and having those right people that connect that money to the ultimate investment is really important, and it can really make or break an organization. You can pick the best investments in the world, but if you get that in-between part wrong, your ultimate client outcome isn't going to work. And how important is it for your team to actually know the portfolio as operations people? Depends on the member of the team. So for fund investing, our folks are looking at the financial statements. We're entering information into our system. And ultimately, that leads to capital account valuations that we're producing for our clients. So for them to understand the specifics of the actual portfolio is not super important to their day-to-day job. They need to understand the fund they're looking at, and they need to understand how that capital account is going to work and to make sure that we're comfortable that it's being done correctly by the underlying fund. That's a bit more mechanical and fund level and not necessarily investment level. But if you move upstream through the team, we're getting into more senior folks who are focused on valuation in a different way. So for our direct strategies, our private credit strategy, co-invest strategies, it gets more and more important for us to understand what that portfolio looks like and is doing so that when we go to those quarterly valuation meetings, we have an understanding of why the company is being valued the way it is how the structure of that investment looks. So it certainly gets more and more important, particularly from a valuation perspective as you move upstream. Because it's like sometimes, is it possible to look at something and go, oh, that looks way out of whack? Or is that just really hard to pick up? That's what we're training our people to do. We're processing a significant volume and we have controls in place. We're investing it with a manager. They're producing a fund financial statements as an example on the primary side of the house. We're already covering off of that. As I said, we got our own ODD team. We have our investment team who's spending a lot of time with those managers, making sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. We're comfortable that their valuation process works in terms of overall from an investment perspective. But we're training our team to be able to spot those things. It's that pattern recognition. So when we get the information in and we're signing off on those cap accounts that are ultimately going to go into our valuations, we really want our team to look at it from a critical perspective, not just take the number and say, this looks good. How much did it change? How big of an unrealized changes? Are they applying the carried interest correctly? And are the cash flow transactions matching up correctly? That critical eye in understanding how a fund works and how the economics of a fund works is something that's really important to a part of our process that is really valuable to what we ultimately end up delivering to clients. And how are you partnering with the investment people on stuff like that? The feedback loop with the investment people is not necessarily ongoing in the day-to-day processes of what we do, but we have a direct line into them. If there's needs from an information perspective, we're not getting the information we need. How do we plug in with them? Or yeah, if there's just a question from time to time on an investment to make sure that we're really understanding, hey, this doesn't look right. Do you have any insights here in terms of how evaluation might have changed or what have you? There's a lot of moving parts there. And what makes a good hire for Adam Street? So again, depending on the level, but if I think of our core hire at a junior level, so regardless of what team we're going to put them on, it really is about patience and learning and being collaborative. One of the things we are really proud of is our culture. I know everybody says that, but it really resonates here. So when we're recruiting and we're interviewing, we talk about that and what that culture is. Culture to me is how people treat each other. Ultimately, you can have all the different bells and whistles around culture that you want, but at the end of the day, I come into the office or I'm at home on a Zoom with you and how do I treat you? How do you treat me? And how do we help each other? That Adam Street way of collaboration is really embedded in everything we do. So number one, first and foremost, when we're recruiting, we tell people that we say it's real. They show up here. They see that it's real. 
And they have to want to fit into that. And we've done a really good job, again, it's not a perfect record, but of finding people that do want to fit into that model that aren't here to say, I want to do better than the person next to me because I want the next job before they get the next job. It's, we're all in this together. We're an employee or an organization. We're going to move this along together and we're going to reach across and help each other out to the extent we need to. So first and foremost, it's fitting into that culture, which is really, really, really important here. And then secondly, it's the patience to learn. There's a pretty steep learning curve for most folks here in terms of just understanding how everything fits together. And it takes time and it takes repetition. So the folks who are really invested in not just being able to do the job, not being able to just say, okay, I can get through all of this information. I can sign off on these valuations. I can approve financial statements. And I understand 90% of what's going on here. That's great. That takes a certain distance in terms of being a good employee. But it's those folks who are like, I'm going to slow down and take the time to understand that next 10% that's going to unlock the next layer of questions, the next layer of understanding of what our business is. And that's going to let me then evolve into the ability to grow into the next role and the next role. You can see that too in folks, the folks that are really asking the right questions and really take the time to do things the right way as they go along. Those are the folks that end up being around for longer and having more success in the organization. And how do you maintain that over time? It just gets harder as you add more people. It comes from the top down. We have a consistent approach to the way we think about recruiting, the way we think about talking to the folks who are recruiting. And from a leadership perspective, the folks who are in those seats that are making those hiring decisions all feel it too. So if you have everybody on the same page, you're going to continue to grow the organization with the right kind of people as long as you're focused on it. You can't take your eye off the ball. You can't say, okay, this time I got to make an exception because I really need someone who knows how to do this very specific thing because that can be really disruptive. So it's something you have to have top of mind and has to permeate across the whole organization to keep it going. And on the client side, when you're interfacing with clients, you could have a lot of different aspects. They could be European or American. How important is it to know the culture of these organizations to help create partnership for long-term investing? Very much, definitely. Our client service organization spreads across the globe for that reason. We've continued to expand into new regions because it is important as you want to try to expand your fundraising footprint to have folks that, to your point, understand how organizations operate culturally within different jurisdictions. From an operational perspective as well, you can definitely see differences. From an operational perspective, I feel like it's a bit more regulatory is where we see the difference. The way and understanding that is important, especially for junior folks on my team. If you have a client that's a U.S. pension plan, their needs may be very different from a Japanese pension plan or a European pension plan. So having that mindset of not everything's going to be the same for everyone And it can be frustrating and time-consuming, but I have to put my client hat on and say, this client, what do they need and why do they need it? And unpacking that to really make a successful back-office connection from an information perspective. Well, Steve, this has been really great and I've enjoyed the conversation. So I'd love to close out with two questions. And one is, any advice you would give to an emerging manager? The transition of going from being a doer to being a manager is one of the biggest career shifts people will ever have. That first time that you're really trying to say, okay, I'm moving upstream and my focus is no longer just on getting something out the door. It's on how do we get it out the door better and how do I help other people get it out the door? That's a big change. So as I think about the best advice I can give for people is to continually change your perspective as your role grows. And what questions are you asking? When you're junior and you're just on the line, getting the work done, your question you're asking is, how do I get this out the door correctly within the confines of the process that we have here? 
And as you turn that hat on to a manager hat, focus on the client perspective. Put aside the operational aspects. The first thing that should go off in your head when you're looking at a new client relationship or a new request isn't necessarily how are we going to do this in our existing process and how potentially painful is that going to be? The question should be, how many ways are there to do this? Forget about my current operational structure. How does this need to be done from a purely delivering the ultimate economics to the client or the ultimate reporting to the client? Does that fit in my current structure? If the answer is no, we got to figure out a new way to do it because we're in the client service business. So if a client needs something, again, there can be negotiation on how you produce a report or exactly what kind of information they need and why they need it. We're certainly happy to have those conversations. But when we get to the place of we need to do this, being the person that can help figure that out is really a perspective thing. And then the other question I like to ask is what common resource did you recommend to people? I think there is a ton of great resources from a private equity perspective. But my big advice for people is to just spend your time, at least in more junior levels, reading just good old-fashioned business news. Read the Wall Street Journal. Read the Financial Times. See what's going on on CNBC. Because that perspective of just, you can read all you want about the private equity industry, and it's important to keep up on it. But to understand what's happening there and why it's happening, you need to go take a step back and understand what's going on in the economy, in the world. So I think it's really, really important for people to not just jump to, hey, I'm just interested in understanding what's going on in the venture business, or I'm understanding what's going on in the bio business today, or the private credit markets, because all of that that's happening there starts two layers back of just really understanding what's going on economically across the world. So I think that people getting themselves educated in that space is something I really push people to do if they ask. Good stuff. Steve, thanks for the time. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time.